Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. I'm your host, Joe Redman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. So, I'm coming to you to talk today a little bit about the story of Ether Revolt, the follow-up block, or the follow-up set in the Kaladesh block uh, where we saw the revolution against the oppression of the consulate on the plain of Kaladesh and uh, the uh, overthrow of the power structure that Tezzeret was assembling uh, occur. And I want to talk to you a little bit today about the history of, of revolution uh, and whether or not the Ether Revolt would be possible in modern history today. So the first thing is that Ether Revolt took place about 60 years after the Mending uh, in the multiverse. It happened as a result of the consulate cracking down on freedom of innovation and invention, seizing many of the great inventors' machines and inventions to use as defense mechanisms for their own protection and safety and sort of restricting freedom of movement, the flow of the substance, the fuel ether, as well as a number of other rights. Now, the consulate is a small group of Kaladeshi uh, nobles, it seems, uh, educated people, high society folks, who sort of help to run the plain of Kaladesh. So you have uh, a consul of allocation, somebody who decides where the resources go, who needs the resources, which neighborhood gets this amount of ether, which, you know, blah, 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 etc. You have a number of different consuls, uh, all sort of functioning on like a, a school board, a city board, essentially, a city council type of, of situation. This is a system that we would call an oligarchy a governance by a small group of people. So it's not a monarchy where there is one figurehead or even a dictatorship where that tends to be the same case. There's a, a single dictator. This is an oligarchy where a, a small group of people make the decisions for everyone else. Now, a lot of you might say, well, how is this different from a representative republic or a representative democracy? In this case, it doesn't seem that the consuls are elected or appointed, which is the case of a democracy or a republic. In this case, it seems like the consuls may be, uh, they may be appointed by each other. They may be sort of voted in as part of a club. I don't, if many of you are sports fans, uh, you'll know that <clears throat> the way that commissioners are determined, are decided, often is by the nomination of the owners or more importantly the new commissioner tends to be one highly recommended by the old outgoing commissioner so for instance when nba commissioner david stern was leaving a couple of years ago he highly recommended adam silver for the job now those of you who are basketball fans will be aware that 
when we got Adam Silver, it was a, a, a good it was a good situation, unlike what was left with David Stern. But that doesn't tend to always be the case. In baseball, when Bud Selig left, he nominated Rob Manfred. And Rob Manfred has turned out to be basically the same kind of commissioner as Bud Selig, somebody who tends to be uh, a little too a little too stodgy and not progressive enough, not seeing the bigger picture on the state of Major League Baseball. And so this is this is a, a way that this sort of insulated, small, closed group system of nomination and club membership, essentially, for leadership can be a negative. You have, then, many people from the same background or the same perspective or the same worldview all getting the chance to rule and make decisions for the larger group rather than there being a diverse viewpoint and perspective represented on the governing body. So that's kind of what I believe we see with the consulate of Kaladesh and especially in the city of Girapur. And so it's this lack of diversity, this lack of understanding, this this intentional in many ways oppression of certain groups and certain areas that does lead to the friction that will eventually spark the ether revolt. However, I want to talk a little bit about what exactly were the causes of the revolution. So the revolution really only sparked once once inventions created by these inventors started to be captured and taken away. Now this is an interesting thing because the inventors seem to be, for the most part, people in, in Girapur and in Greater Kaladesh who have some sort of means, some sort of amount of, of wealth or uh, financial support, stability, to be able to create these inventions, these devices, and you know, take time as an experimenter, as an inventor, to create things, and and those of you that know the the creative process is a long, slow, hard one. Now, that's not to say that every artist has wealth or or means. Many people do struggle and put their whole working life and whole financial well-being into their art or their artisanship. But being an artisan, being a craftsman, being an artist is a very middle-class sort of career. It's a very um, solidly uh, socially middle or up, upward um, position in society. And so that's where we see this revolution come from. It's from the people who are inventors. It's from the people of... Uh, the Nalars neighborhood in Girapur uh, that has been deprived of ether. And I do want to note that while ether is an important, a very important substance in the culture and economy of Kaladesh, it's not a vital substance in terms of staying alive. It's not water, it's not 
food. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not like Kaladesh has an extreme climate so that the ether needs to fuel furnaces to keep them warm, to keep them alive. It's a, a little, it seems a little bit of a luxury, uh, frankly. And so that's why this especially, this revolution does feel to me to be a very um, middle-class sort of seeming revolution. Now, why do I bring up class in this? This It's interesting to me because I, I am a, in terms of beliefs, I am a political beliefs, I am a Marxist. And Karl Marx in the real world was a political philosopher who talked a lot about, he, he, sort of, he essentially created the philosophical underpinnings or, or sort of compiled the philosophical underpinnings for uh, what would become socialism and uh, communism it, it, when taken to a different place. Now, a, communism implemented as a state is very different from the belief of Marx of what communism as an end result would be. So let's keep those two things separate as well for the sake of this discussion. But Marx, going back to the point, Marx always believed that the revolution would come from the lower class, the have-nots, not the haves. The thing with a revolution, the thing with oppression is that oppression tends to affect the have-nots the most because once they finally have something and it gets taken away then, then they have nothing again and therefore it's more to them. However, when it comes from the middle class, the middle class still have things, or the upper class, the upper class still have things to make their lives good, fulfilled, comfortable. And so for the risk of losing those other things, they won't revolt. So Marx always said the way that the, uh, the capitalist system would be overthrown would be from the lower class who has nothing to lose, nothing to risk by fighting back against the system. And frankly, we see that quite a bit in the real world that the people leading the civil actions, the, the activist uh, protests and the progressive marches forward in society are people with less means than the most, I'm sorry, are people with less privilege in society than, say, a middle-class white man who speaks English, is heterosexual, and cisgender. As one of those, I can say that, yeah, the idea of revolting is scary. Because I have privilege in society, because I have a certain position already afforded to me, and if that system does get flipped, then... I don't know what my position is anymore, but it's women, it's people of color, it's LGBTQ plus people, it's transgender people. These people constantly are leading pushes and leading fights for equality, for better rights, for better representation. It's the poor. It's all of these people who do push towards better society because they so starkly can see the representation of how society is treating them poorly. And so that's what I'm 
kind of not understanding and haven't understood about the story of Eat the Revolt is it feels like a very middle class sort of revolution and purpose as to why they flip over the consulate. Uh, sure, there is some element of on Kaladesh mages, nat natural mages are very rare and pyromancy, fire magic is specifically outlawed. And so PNLR maybe has more of a personal uh, vendetta against the consulate because they harmed uh, Chandra, you know, who is a fire mage. But there, this still to me doesn't seem to ring true to a, the way that a, a revolt would actually happen in the real world. In, indeed, too, it's, it seems to me that Kaladesh has to be a really small plane because, again, think about the way that this revolution starts is it's the oppression of one district, one neighborhood in Girapur. That's the way it starts. And it foments and it bubbles and it sparks and, and a lot more happens afterwards. But it's one group of people. It's inventors and, and rebels from this neighborhood. In the real world, there are so many varied and different perspectives and different representations, different points of view, different abilities and means uh, that no one group would actually be able to overturn a society like this. And specifically, when you think about the, the United States of America, that's, that's where I live and where I have the most experience, of course, thinking about this kind of thing. We are a nation of 300 million people, rapidly growing every single day. The more people you have, the more people you need in order to change the majority of public sentiment. So in Kaladesh, one neighborhood provides the spark that sets the whole plane on fire for this revolution. Or in America, one state could revolt. That wouldn't really even be enough. There's 49 others then that are still seeing things, for the majority probably, as the way that they are and want them to stay at the status quo. Then that one state just becomes a, a rebel, as it were. Now, this is something, too, that, that occurs to me is it's possible that this district is the one revolting and the rest of the city is sort of staying static and the rest of the plane is sort of staying neutral as, as this whole thing plays out. And it could be that it's this one group that is doing the heavy lifting and, and does the majority of the fighting and the revolting and the overthrow and the activism. And the rest are just sort of waiting to see how it plays out and not taking a side. And that to me is maybe a little more realistic than, than the alternative, which is a full societal overthrow. But I believe what we see, is, what the sort of suggestion is in the story of Ether Revolt and Kaladesh is that everybody starts marching against the, the consulate. Everybody starts fighting back against the oppression and the tyranny. And I just don't see that as, as possible in the world today. As much as I would love, as much as I would love to see the United States 
flip over a lot of its policies, say the white nationalism that it supports currently in its in its halls of government. You know, I would love to see us stop funding uh, and allowing big pharmaceutical and medical companies and, and medical insurance to run the show when it comes to people's lives and health care. I would love to see that stuff flip overnight as a result of specific individual grassroots action. I would love to see that happen, but I don't see it happening because of the power and money that the status quo holds and because even the 50% or 70% of the people who support that in theory won't today get up, pick up a, a baseball bat or a pitchfork or uh, a broom and march down to their state capital or their city capital, their city hall, and demand that those interests relinquish their power. They won't do that. There is just two the more people you have, the large, the larger your community is, the more momentum you need to start tipping things over the edge. And so perhaps this is that's what happened in this story of Ether Revolt is it is one district that had a personal grudge against the consulate and had some sort of wealth and means to actually fuel this revolution and not just need mass uh, groups of people to fight. Perhaps that's the, the key to what made Kaladesh's ether revolt go. But the problem with that in the real world is revolution is slow. Revolution is hard. And some smaller nations are able to pull it off much more quickly with much more direct action. But in a country as large and as well entrenched in its ways as the United States, just might not be possible that way. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be finding every possible way to flip things when we can, to flip people's hearts, to spark the fire of resistance and rebellion in these people, because hopefully we'll get that critical mass someday. Hopefully we'll flip the heart of somebody who's willing to help use their inventions and devices as fuel for the revolution against people who hold us in oppression and tyranny. But until then, it's just not enough of us to, to cause that momentum. That's our show. You can find the podcast at Pod on Twitter or email any questions, comments, or concerns to Podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support your friendly neighborhood gobslugs, you can do so at patreon.com slash pod. Our music is by Vintergott, who you can find at Vintergotten.com. That's Winter G-A-T-A-N.com. Logo by Stephen Raphael on Twitter at Stephen Raffle. Goblin Lore is a presentation of Hipsters of the Coast, which you can find at hipstersofthecoast.com or at hipstersmtg on Twitter. Thank you all for listening. And remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. Thank you.